This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch. Now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only excludes Alaska and Hawaii. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer.
Hurry before they're all gone. All right, it's a, another film study. As we're going to look back at the Ravens' win on Sunday night. Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm getting ahead of myself. I said Sunday night. It is Sunday day. Next week is when we'll talk about the Sunday night game. There you go. Looking forward to that one against the Patriots in New England. Yeah, of course. It's going to be exciting. Not as exciting as I think we all thought it would be at the beginning of the season, but playing in New England is always something fun. There you go. Ravens will be a big favorite going into that game. It looks like uh, they were seven before this game against the Jets. And I don't want to hear anything, guys, about this game. I've got it paused while we're doing this recording uh, right around 10 o'clock on Monday night. Well, I, well, if you've got it paused, you've already watched part of it. I know the score is 20 to 10. All right. So you know the story of the game is Joe Flacco and Brashard Perriman. <laughs> no, I did not know that. So I, I, okay. will, I, I may or may not actually go back to watch the beginning of the game. But anyway. Okay. All right, then you just pause it right in the middle. I, I see how you're doing. I know you've been busy all day. Well, how many times did you watch this Ravens game? Oh, uh, well, we've, we watched it several times. We just got to finish scoring the offensive line, so that's okay. the part we did. And that'll, of course, we'll, we'll record that show tomorrow night. All right. All right, well, let's get our guest for the show is another Josh, Josh Reed from the Maryland Sports Blog. Josh, how are you doing? Doing great, guys. Uh, great to be on here. Great to have you, Josh. Really appreciate your writing over there and, and all the shorts you've done with me. Always been a lot of fun to talk football with you. Uh, yeah, I love talking football with you, too. All right. Well, let's talk about the loss of Calais Campbell first. Pretty significant loss. Josh, you have feelings about this, probably. Josh, I'm sorry. We've got to be careful. We have multiple Joshes <laughs> on the yeah. show here. But I really okay. met Josh Soroka in this case. Oh, about me? I'm sorry. I was stepping out until the mailbag. I was going to leave it to you. <laughs> what, you, you, want, you want to know my thoughts about well, this? Campbell was lost early in the game, yeah. and I just wondered how you felt about it. I mean, I, I thought it was going to sting a lot mm-hmm. uh, because it's been really nice to see that big guy up there in the front and getting his hands up. I feel like he's knocked a bunch of balls down this season. But the uh, Ravens played fine without him yesterday. I hope we can have him back for Pittsburgh and Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think I I don't know if that's happening because I'm not sure if he's going to injure reserve yet. You do you know anything more, uh, Josh? Yeah, so yeah, so he's not going on injury reserve as of as of right now. Like Harbaugh is kind of noncommittal about talking about his injury today. But Ian Rappaport from NFL Network did report that he's going to be out anywhere between two to four weeks. So hopefully it's just two weeks and he can have, be back for a Pittsburgh game. But it'll be coming off a short week uh, with a little practice time. So who knows? Fingers crossed. So they have until basically Saturday, I think, to put him on IR and still have him miss exactly the next three games as opposed to having to defer a week and then miss at least three games, which would be inconvenient, potentially. So they'll kind of have to make a decision probably by Saturday, I believe, is the, the time frame in order to get him on IR and, and not miss an additional game. All right. In, in terms of how the team played after Campbell left, how about that? Um, you know, I was talking to one of my coworkers today, and I was like, the stars left standing stood out, and the backups really rose to the occasion. Um, you know, like guys like Marcus Peters, who I'm sure we're going to get into, Matt and Judon, and uh, uh, some other guys. It's really kind of like like guys who were left standing did step up, and not step up, but they did stand out. You know, as they as they should. You know, being the stars of the team, but then the backups really stepped up too today. I mean, I guess yesterday. Yeah, there you go. Um, 
Very big win. Adverse circumstances. So many things going on against the Ravens this week. It really felt like there was a large undercurrent that might pull them under. And then Lamar Jackson just came out and seemed to be throw ball or uh, get ball, first read, throw, rather than move around, try and create space with his legs, and extend for better plays. Yeah, it was really like a, a tale of two halves for both the offense and the defense, more so for the offense than the than the defense. But um, I was like, I was I was pleased to see what I saw from Lamar. Um, uh, you know, second half of the game, I think Charles Davis from CBS said that you know the key to the games for the Ravens that day was to play, not press. And I think that Lamar did exactly that in the second half. He was playing more so than pressing. He wasn't trying to force things. He was taking what was available. And I think that Greg Roman also did a great job just keeping up some open some open plays for him, easy throws for him to make. Right. I, I, I think that was really one of the keys there is that a lot of the, the, lot of the balls they threw in the second half weren't routes that had to take time to develop and went through multiple reads. They were first read plays like slants and, and you know, some screens as well. So uh, of course, that was the entire bread and butter of the Colts offense. Rivers, in fact, completed 14 passes behind the line of scrimmage in this game, which is as many as I've ever seen done in a single game. All of their offense went to the outside, and the Ravens had to basically find a way to react to that, and we're going we're gonna to get into that. But what, your thoughts on the way the Colts ran their offense in a general sense? Yeah, I was actually a little surprised. I thought it was going to be a lot more. I mean, I know they were kind of depleted at the receiver position, but I thought they were going to try to spread the Ravens out a little bit more and just like attack the slot, which is, you know, where they're, I guess, perceived to be weak without Mark Humphrey and Tavon Young, who was, you know, obviously lost earlier in the season. So I thought they, I, thought, I mean, they, they did, you know, target Terrell Bonds a little bit, you know, in the first half, but not as much as I thought they were going to. And um, like I said, he was throwing it to his backs and his receivers on those little quick screens and stuff behind the line of scrimmage, little swing routes, like way more than I thought they would. Yeah, just a, a certainly a, a very short passing game. Lots of stats on Rivers. We'll get to that. Um, let's talk about one of the really interesting things about this game for starters. Now, obviously, a lot of things in the ebb and flow of the game we'll get to, but the, the biggest thing probably that turned the game around was the interception by Peters. Uh, down 14-10 to 10 at the time. They had just fumbled the ball away on the previous play going in. Effectively, Edwards at the at the three yard line. Uh, the snap came. He fumbled the ball around the six yard line, and that play really seemed to be a gut punch. Not necessarily the end for the Ravens, who just had a very effective drive, but certainly stopped a a, a nice positive momentum shift. And then Philip Rivers put up a very underthrown ball. Peters got under it. He's in the correct position to intercept the ball. Seemed to have it initially. Then, after a brief period of time, which was yet to be determined how long that was, had the ball knocked free by the receiver. Yeah, so when you watch it live, you're like, okay, you know, he dropped the, he dropped the pick. But really, when, like, he got those feet down so quickly, all four steps, that people forget that all you need is, you know, established possession and, you know, two feet down. He actually had four, he, you know, got four feet, one, two, three, four, and, and you know, he established possession, and then the ball was knocked out of his hand. So he really completely did kind of completed the trifecta, you know, as far as, you know, possession, two feet down in football move. Yeah, it, it, it seems that way to me. I always kind of wonder what constitutes three steps. I think it's actually four feet down, and he was tap, 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 tap. So he had it done. But, you know, you kind of have to have two feet down to make a step, don't you? So it's kind of like you, you your first step is the second foot down, maybe. But whatever the case, it went the Ravens' way. And 
what was great about it was the nature of the challenge itself. Because now John Harbaugh has coached now in 217 NFL games. That includes playoffs. So 200 during the regular season, 17 during the playoffs. He's challenged 109 times. So just over half a challenge per game. Uh, he's been successful 48 of those times. And I, what I wanted, what I proposed to do anyway, is go back and look at those 48 successful challenges and see if any of them would meet the following standard as the best challenge Harbaugh ever made. So I'm going I'm to toss out four rules or four conditions that I think a challenge should meet in order to, to be that. And maybe you can come up with another, or maybe one of the listeners can when we, when we hear from you on, uh, by Twitter or whatever. But uh, the first one is that the challenge needs to be successful. I think that goes without saying, if the challenge isn't successful, it's not one of the best challenges you ever made. I'll give you the all four before, and then give you a chance to respond to this. The second is, I want it to be a high leverage play in the game. doesn't get more high leverage than getting an interception down four um, in the third quarter at midfield. That's a, that's a very high leverage play in the game. The third thing would be a game with playoff implications if the game, in fact, was not a playoff game itself. So obviously, fourth quarter of a Super Bowl, a challenge is going to overshadow almost anything else uh, during the regular season that would be on the same level. Um, but that's not to say, and, a, and the fourth reason is the reason, that a challenge that is sort of automatic under those circumstances would necessarily be as good a challenge. The fourth one I'm going with is knowledge of the rules which made the challenge other than 100% obvious. So in this case, we might have had that because there's been changes in the way a catch has been defined. Yeah, and I think it really kind of boils down to like veteran experience as a coach. Like, you know, the guy who's like John Harper, like you said, is coaching all those games. He's been around the block. You know, it's almost like he's got, I want to say Belichickian, but the kind of knows the rule book to the point that we're like, look, I know what constitutes as a catch. You know, like this isn't, you know, Des Bryant from, you know, whatever 2014 NFC Championship. Like, you know, they 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 really kind of crack down on what a catch is, what constitutes a catch a few years back following that, you know, debacle in that playoff game. And I think John Harbaugh, like, realized that. I know he's saying he looked up at the Jumbotron, and he didn't even wait for the guys upstairs to let him know to challenge it. He just looked up and was like, hey, he caught that. I, you know, I wish he hadn't have said that because I'd have more respect for him if he listened to the guys on the headset, and maybe if they, even if they had somebody on the headset who was the rules expert, you know, an ex-official, they could they could easily bring in someone like that as an assistant coach. I don't know that they have such a person on the on the Ravens staff, by the way, who could easily just talk to Harbaugh and say, "Hey, look, under those circumstances, uh, that that I see four feet down, he only needs three. Blah 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 blah. The new rules for a catch." I would I would be more happy if he delegated that than was required to know itself. In the same way, I'm more impressed with a good corporate CEO who hires a very effective number two to manage his operations as opposed to trying to do it all himself. Yeah, it's always good to delegate, and like it would be nice to have somebody, even if it was somebody who's watching the broadcast in the building, you know, or in the stadium at the time, just so they can be like, hey, like, look, I'm watching what everybody else at home is watching, and you need to challenge that. But the fact that he kind of had the wherewithal to just pop his head up and be like, wait a minute, my guy got that, you know, because they are like, it's almost kind of funny. You think, I guess teams shouldn't maliciously do this, but like, you know, whenever it's like a possible turnover or a touchdown reversing play against the home team, you almost want them, like, you think a team wouldn't want to replay that on the Jumbotron for, for even the opposing side to see. But that's what, that's what the, the Colts did, and John Harbaugh benefited from it. Yeah, that would, that would certainly make a lot of sense if you had that if you had that ability not to reshow that replay. It used to be a big thing 
when I was a kid anyway, or, or maybe even as the 80s when I was not quite a kid anymore, but I, I'd go to a baseball game and they'd never show a close play. You know, they had it, they had the first version of the Jumbotron was out there in about 1985 or so, and they just wouldn't, they would never show it if it was a close play. But, but now they, they show everything on the Jumbotron, particularly at a football game, and, and uh, there's no issue with that. All right. Well, anyway, my, my vote goes out there. That's probably the best challenge of the, of, the, of the Harbaugh era, but I do want to study it a little bit and go through each of the 48 successful challenges to see if there's another one that really met a, more of an important standard and, more importantly, more of a it wasn't a really obvious challenge to make situation. So but what I'm thinking about is from the Cardinals and Pittsburgh Super Bowl, which was decided on a toe tap in the end zone. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So Holmes, Holmes, Holmes. Yeah. And and that one, it's like okay, it was a, it was a high value challenge, but it was also an obvious challenge that you that they're you know either side, whoever had lost the play the way it was called on the field, and I don't even remember which way it was called on the field at this point. The other team had to challenge it. It was just it was it was too important a play to not challenge at that point. Might have even been a been a booth review, frankly, at that point. I don't really remember. Yeah, I know all scoring plays are automatically reviewed depending on if they call it, I think, incomplete or not. I think, I think, I think now they review it either way. But I think like back then, if they called they it incomplete, have. yeah, incomplete on the field, they were just going to roll with that until a coach challenged it. Yeah, and and it might have been that in the last two minutes they did it, or that may be more recent than two thousand eight, which I think is the year that that Pittsburgh did in the in the Super Bowl there. Um, all right. Well, anyway, let's let's move on a little bit. So let's talk some packages here in terms of. Uh, uh, what the Ravens did. Actually, let's talk pass rush first because I think that's of more interest to people. Uh, go through a little bit of the high-level stuff. We mentioned Rivers completed 14 of 15 passes behind the line of scrimmage. He got rid of the ball extremely quickly in this game. Average for the year now is 2.5 seconds. I forget if it's 2.52 or 2.48, but for this game, it was even lower. 2.42 in Week 9, um, which was one of the fastest in the league. Not quite the fastest, and not quite as fast as Ben Roethlisberger was last week against the Ravens, but still very fast. And it is exponentially more difficult to generate effective pressure against a quarterback who's consistently getting rid of the ball that quickly. Yeah, I mean, like as soon as you guys get a good ahead of steam, the ball's already out. You know, before you can even put a set up a guy for it, make a spin move or inside or inside rush or like swim or anything like that, the ball's already gone. So you don't even have time to kind of like get into your bag of tricks. Yeah, very much so. And and last week it was even more. Uh, I think Pittsburgh took even more chances on letting a pass rush develop because they played with an empty backfield. But with with the Colts game, because so many of the pass plays were going on or outside screen passes and and, uh, and and little swing passes and whatnot, but a lot of screen passes, frankly, they were already designed for the ball to get out almost immediately or even to allow pressure before the ball got out. And those very rarely end up in any kind of real pressure. They just end up in the quarterback backpedaling as he, as he throws a ball. And uh, the Ravens, frankly, didn't do much to diagnose the screen passes in a way that pr- got a player into position where that screen pass would be grounded, which is kind of an ideal thing to do. They didn't really have... Uh, they might have had one of those the entire game. I'm thinking the end of the half, that wasn't really going to be a screen pass maybe, but... Uh, maybe there's another play during the game you can think of where, the, where uh, the Rivers was forced to ground a screen pass at some point. 
Yeah, most of the screen passes he complete like that he threw were were completed. It almost like it's almost like one of the Marlon Humphrey was in this game just because like he's kind of been like a screen killer, you know, like with the with the aggressive way he plays. Like I just, so many times I've seen him just like fire into the backfield and blow up a screen before I had time to develop on the plays that Ravens did defend the screens well. Yeah, the Ravens had very dedicated pass rushers now on the outside. So when they had Terrell Suggs, he was a guy who could sniff out a screen a mile away. But even when he wasn't exactly sniffing it out, he'd still he would be okay taking a second to try and see if it was a screen. Made a couple peekaboo interceptions versus the uh, Steelers on such plays, but also uh, had had other plays where he just decided to hold back for a second before rushing the passer because he knew if the I'm only going to get really get to him likely if it's an extended play anyway, so I can I can still rush late, but let me take a second to hold back, see if it's a screen, and then I'll rush. And the Ravens don't really have a guy I think who who thinks that way right now. I don't think I really don't think either Judon or Ngakwe or that sort of player. Yeah, no, and I think it really comes with, like, you know, years and years vested in the league. Like yeah. I said, Terrell Suggs, by, that, by the time in his career, and when he was, like, doing that on a regular basis, he'd already been in the league, I think, almost a, almost a decade, if not if not more. So you kind of got to be around the block a little bit to realize that. And then when you're going against a quarterback, like, two weeks in a row now, with two veteran guys who, you know, don't move, move a lot of moving around, like, get the ball out quick, you know, you kind of – you almost want those guys to have that veteran savvy. I thought maybe God Pernell McPhee might have that, but you know, it's only one Terrell Suggs. Those kind of guys don't come around every every oh. every uh, few years. Very, very, very special player, and and you know they miss everything about him. Certainly, uh, from his prime, anyway, they miss everything about him. All right, so let's go back to Rivers for a second because he had ample time and space on just twelve of forty-one dropbacks. That's twenty-nine percent, kind of a low total by today's standards. I expect maybe in the mid-thirties, but. Beyond that, he got rid of the ball quickly, meaning I think the pressure would have developed in th- within three seconds, on 20 of 41 dropbacks, which is a ridiculously high percentage uh, for him to get rid of the ball. So I, I don't really think the Ravens got much effective pressure, but they did get some pressure. Um, and if you think of it, it's more like 12 out of 21 on the plays where Rivers held the ball a little longer uh, uh, than these 20. <laughs> so it, he obviously, he negated a lot of the pressure and, and that impacted a lot of how Martindale approached the pass rush scheme in this game. Yeah. I was a little surprised that they didn't hold the ball a little bit longer, especially after Campbell went out. Like you see like, Oh, that's their best pass rusher. And you know, I guess in terms of, you know, like sack stats, but like, I, I thought that maybe they were going to maybe try to hold the ball a little bit longer and get some more uh, longer developing plays, you know, for, for rivers to kind of take some more shots down the field. But um, I guess it wasn't the case. Yeah, Rivers had been pretty effective on long passes coming into this game. He, but, uh, but in this game, he was one for five on throws of 20 more yards, and, and one of those incompletes was an interception. So uh, not, a, not a good day, obviously, for him throwing the long ball, and the Raven cornerbacks really did a good job uh, of sealing down the long passing game. Uh, they did allow a fair number of underneath throws, and they, and they allowed some yards after the catch on those underneath throws, but uh, it was primarily a, uh, a very short passing game. Rivers, the average air yards of his completions in this game, only 2.4, which was the lowest in the entire NFL this week. So he had a lot of negatives within that total. I actually thought it might have been negative for the game when I looked for it and and seeing all those 14 passes behind the line of scrimmage completed. But he did have a small positive number there, even though it was the lowest in the league. All right, let's talk about the Ravens' pass rush in terms of numbers. They rushed 5-plus on 10 of 34 for the game. Make that 10 of 41 for the game, uh, 
That's the lowest of the season so far. We're at 31% for Washington, uh, which was the previous low. But more importantly, or maybe more uh, descriptively, they didn't rush five for the very first time until the Colts' last offensive play of the third quarter. Every previous rush was a three- or four-man rush. Yeah, I think that was kind of telling, I guess, because the Ravens coming into this game knew that the Rivers were going to get the ball out of Vans quick, and I guess Wink figured that, you know, why send more guys if this guy is just going to dump the ball off? And especially as he got a more feel for the game and saw that they're throwing all these passes behind the line of scrimmage, what's the point of me, you know, sending an extra dude if he's going to be out of position if the ball is going to be going either to the left or to the right perimeter? Yeah, lots of, you know, that really ties into some other things as well, because it's not just numbers that you need basically to combat the screen, meaning not rushing with numbers. But there can be some screen, some some other scheme elements too. Obviously, if you have a player blitzing and it's not an extra number, it really shouldn't be any worse than having a guy at the line of scrimmage rushing the passer. But let's take stunts, for example, because that's something where the Ravens have been really successful recently. They only stunted five times in this game spread across four snaps. They did get a couple pressures on that. But I think one of the reasons that they didn't stunt much when they've been so successful with it is that they didn't want to compromise themselves versus the screen passes there either. And obviously, if you're running twists, you you have a much higher chance to get in the wash on some screen passes than you otherwise would. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head right then and there. Like I said, you don't want, you don't want guys getting out of position because you're trying to scheme up some pressure or trying to get a guy to get a you know a free rush on the quarterback when the ball's already out into the flats and the guy's 10, 15 yards downfield or the lineman already released and already building up a convoy for that um, for that developing screen. Yeah. All right. So 12 blitzes from off the line of scrimmage. That's a substantive number. Uh, most of those were zone blitzes, meaning they they uh, just have, I know you know this, Josh, but a lot of people who listen to the show might not for sure, is that a, a blitz comes from usually from one side to overload that side, and then another player usually on the opposite side drops to cover. It doesn't usually make a lot of sense to drop and and blitz from the same side, right, as a defensive play, as a defensive coordinator? Yeah, yeah, no, that's why you see, like, either one of the same linebackers is either going to be Judon or uh, or Bowser kind of like drop off when they do bring another guy on the other on the overload on the opposite side. All right, and then we talk about simulated pressure as well in this show, and the Ravens have a lot of opportunities to to do simulated pressure, both of the outside linebackers and anybody an inside linebacker you can stuff in the a gap and show that um, uh, you know, show a six man front and and put doubt in the minds of the offensive line about who to block. That's been very effective against some of the poor offensive lines they've played, most notably. Uh, Philadelphia and Cincinnati. Uh, I'd say also Houston as well. Um, but it's been uh, it, it's it's something that they did less of in this game. They had only five drops of two plus in the game. That's the second lowest number of simulated pressures in the game. So you obviously do put your inside linebackers at a disadvantage covering a screen if you line them up in the a gap and then ask them to drop at the snap. Yeah, and I think that's something that you, so when you're going against veteran quarterbacks, you got to be wary of because those guys are going to know, or either they'll know that the guy's coming or not coming, or they'll check, okay, well, these guys are going to be out of position to defend this screen. Let me check to this. You know, especially you see that a lot with like veteran quarterbacks like Phillip Rivers and, and you know, Tom Brady and, and Ben Loftusberger and even Peyton Manning during his heyday when he realized that the guys were going to be out of position for a check that they had, that they would check to that instead. Yep. Yep. Very much so. So I look at this, I, I look at the game and I say, see, the Ravens only had two quarterback hits, 
no sacks. And I say, was it really a bad pass rush game? Or was it just a scheme that more or less fit the quarterback? And the quarterback was in a position not to allow pressure, but he certainly didn't turn the opportunity and the lack of, of sacks and, and pressure into anything really particularly positive. And when we look at the game, I think the Colts, had, like, they had 5.4 yards per pass. You can live with that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be happy with Joe Flacco doing that as he did many years. They scored 10 points. Nothing wrong with that. You can win a lot of games scoring, you know, giving up 10 points. And they went 4 of 16 on 3rd and 4th down, which is the highest leverage wins you can, you can get. I think the Ravens' pass defense was excellent, even though the pass rush didn't necessarily produce. So I'm going to reject the notion for now that the Ravens' pass rush is broken or that it became broken with the loss of Campbell, both of which I've heard uh, you know, in the last day or so. Yeah, it's hard to generate a pass rush when your pass rush doesn't have time to get a pass rush. And I one of my keys to the game when I was you know doing preview in this game for Maryland Sports Blog was it's going to be imperative that the pass rush you know get home quickly because the secondary is going to be at a disadvantage with so many injuries and then without without Humphrey. But the, for them to perform in the way that they did, and albeit you know because the Colts did decide to take the shorter game, I thought that was to their disadvantage and more to the Ravens' advantage. But overall, I thought it was a great day from the from the from the past coverage standpoint. And like I said, I don't think the pass rush is broken either. I just think they didn't have time to get there. You're going to get the great offensive line, and the way the other team was attacking you wasn't allowing you to really get a pass rush going. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good point there. I mean, the Colts have one of the better offensive lines in the in the league, and certainly one of the better pass blocking lines as well. Very good screen blocking line, by the way, too. But did they at all neutralize one of their own advantages? by going screen, screen, screen all the time and allowing the Ravens basically to not commit resources to rushing the passers, passer drop seven and kind of play this game a little loose, let them have some plays uh, and then make their own mistakes. This game reminds me a lot of the Washington game in that respect. Yeah, 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 most definitely. And I, I, I just think that, you know, it was a little surprising considering the kind of offensive guru that Frank Reich is that he wouldn't, you know, try to blend a different, uh, I guess like, to blend it from different game plans from what he saw from like you know Kansas City and from Pittsburgh in the second half and try to build off of that instead of rolling out what they did um, on, on Sunday and it was really for the large part unsuccessful. All right, all right, it was a cool, uh, it's cool to see them operate the way they did. I thought you know th- there were a couple players who stood out as getting some pressure and Gakwe I had for three pressures in the game, Wolf I had for three pressures in the game. I thought those guys did a pretty good job on a day where pressures were very, very difficult to come by. Other than that, honestly, Ellis might have been the next best pass rusher for the Ravens. He had a one pressure as I scored it, another pass defense in the backfield that almost became a touchdown. But pretty damn limited day in terms of pressures uh, and and how often they presented themselves. Yeah, it was definitely slim pickings as far as opportunities to get to generate pressure. But when they did, like I said, they got some guys almost capitalized or made the best of what they could from what they had. All right, let's roll on and and talk about packages in this game because the Ravens are came into the game extremely limited again in the secondary, and there were some promising points this week because Anthony Levine practiced all week. Okay, and he even played a few snaps by the way on defense, which he hadn't done since week two. So that was positive. Geno Stone was activated from the practice squad. Definitely a positive development. Uh, But they didn't use Stone at all on defense. They barely used Levine on defense. And they effectively signaled, Martindale did, that there's only two safeties he's really confident having out there. And that's 
Elliott and Clark, and the next guy up as the dime back, and you need a third safety to play good dime defense, is Chris Board. So they're, not, they're no longer using a, a, a true safety in that role. They're using a, a, a linebacker to play that dime back role. Yeah, and I always believe if, if, if it was like a different team, like say like a, a Chiefs or something like that, that you know the Ravens would have been more inclined to put the defensive backs on the field. But after seeing what how Indy was attacking them on Sunday, they figured like, okay, we'll, we'll stick with what we've been doing the past couple of weeks, like as you said on your previous podcast, and use Chris Board as that proxy safety instead of putting a guy who we don't necessarily trust in coverage. You know, like, like, who is a defensive back right now? Right. Well, there you go, and. Uh... Uh, you know the other the they're also still extremely thin at corner, and I guess we probably ought to talk about this because Terrell Bonds is now the absolute rock solid number three slot corner uh, for this team. Meaning, okay, he's the he is the slot corner for this team, and Smith and Peters are the only remaining outside choices until Humphrey returns. Yeah, uh, that is. Time... <laughs> yes, go ahead. I was saying every time I mention the Ravens cornerback depth, I always make sure I put the words razor thin because that's really what it is right now. And I was really pleased what I saw from Terrell Bond, but that the Philip Rivers was going to test him early and often, which he kind of did to an extent. But really, overall, he played, performed really, very well, especially in the second half. Yeah, the situation at corner at at in all across the defensive backfield is not stable because defensive backs just don't stay healthy week after week in the NFL. There's too much, too much rotational injuries and always some permanent injuries for, you know, full season injuries to deal with as you go through a season. But what, you know, what they've got right now is the most unusual circumstance possible. Their top players are excellent. Their big four are as good as anybody can field in the entire league with Smith, Peters, and the two safeties they have. I take them, I probably take them over any other group of four defensive backs in the league. But then they've got Bonds. He's on the field, and that's that's obviously he's been targeted a lot because he's the weakest link in those five. No shame in that, you know. But but he is the weakest link of the of the five there. Then you've got another guy in there, Patrick Queen, who's playing a lot of snaps, obviously, and presents, uh, you know, an opportunity in coverage for opposing quarterbacks to pick on him and work on some of his weaknesses that that show up week after week. Yeah, it's definitely been a thing that's been a huge talking point about the Ravens defense this uh, this season. And really, it, I mean, for for years, it's been like the like the coverage ability of the linebackers. You know, CJ Mosley finally kind of kind of figured it out a little bit in his latter years in Baltimore. But for the most part, but specifically talking about Queen, um, John Harbaugh even said that's one of the hardest things for young linebackers to figure out is coverage, especially zone coverage. And when he's responsible for his zone and doesn't stay in that zone because he thinks he sees something else and tries to use his instincts that kind of carried him up until this point in his, in his football career, yeah. you know, other opposing quarterbacks and especially those who are veteran and savvy will know like, okay, I can, I can kind of fool this guy with my eyes or make him think we're going this, we're really going that way. And his vacated zone ends up being a hot spot for them to get open receivers into. Yeah, very, very much so. All they got to do is see it once, and they know that weakness. In fact, they'll be on it as no later than the next half of football you play against them, and, and hopefully that's not the second half of that game. Uh, and, and Queen has been making multiple errors in most of these games, uh, in particular the Kansas City game. He had about five instances where his own teammates gesticulated at him in some way on the field. You know, gave body language that indicates how so upset they are with how he's not not staying with his responsibilities. But beyond that... I think there's three levels to learning those coverage responsibilities as linebacker. And number one is knowing what your responsibility is off the line of scrimmage on bunch formation stuff. There's so much of that going on in the NFL, and it's such a weak spot for linebackers. you got to know what your responsibility is 
coming off that line of scrimmage. That's number one. Number two, you got to understand the difference between zone and man and when you pass somebody off and when you stay in your zone as opposed to when you trail that guy and then how you make it difficult for the quarterback. And then number three is what you're talking about with Mosley that he learned later on in his career. He knew well, he knew those things early on in his career, but the, what he learned later was how to understand what route concepts were happening behind him. And that's where Patrick Owasso never learned that. You know, he, he, he had some speed to cover, but he didn't have, you know, some of these other traits to understand what was going on behind him. Yeah, and I think what really kind of boils down to sometimes is having a good veteran linebacker who understands that kind of stuff and has excelled in that kind of stuff, at least some part in their career, they can come in and teach that person that. Like I th- I, a recent example now, you see Devin White and Levante David down in Tampa. You know, uh, Levante David is one of the best, most complete linebackers in the league, and he's able to be there for uh, for Devin White, the former LSU guy, and kind of teach him the, kind of the tricks of the trade. And so that, you know, he can understand that, you know, like, hey, you don't always have to follow this guy across the field, pass him off, and then like now they have one of the better inside linebacker tandems in the league. And then C.J. Mosley, he had Daryl Smith when he first got into the league and kind of teach him, show him, show him the ropes. You know, Daryl Smith, for a guy who wasn't overly athletic, had yeah. a great understanding of, you know, like the route concepts and knowing how to be in position to make plays in a passing game. Yeah, that's a great point. Daryl Smith was was outstanding coverage linebacker, and Mosley really picked that up very quickly. So he was fortunate in that regard, and probably Zach Orr, you know, collected some of that from Mosley. But other linebackers didn't learn it. You know, Kenny Young really didn't learn it. Didn't have a lot of time with the Ravens to do it, season and a what, a half season, a quarter, roughly, w- with the Ravens. But Patrick Owasso had several years and, d- and never picked it up. Uh, you know, we, we, you look at, at Queen, and I got to wonder, you know, how quickly is it going to come when it comes? He's got LJ Fort there he can work with right now. He meets the standard of a guy who understands how to close down passing lanes and be in the where he needs to be, at least schematically, on most pass plays. Why hasn't he picked it up more quickly so far? Um, I'm I'm not I'm not sure. I think it's because, like I said, he hasn't had a whole lot of experience doing this at this level. And I think a guy like L.J. Fort, who is just like you know so multiple in the things that he does for the defense, maybe he doesn't have all the time he needs to dedicate towards you know kind of teaching him the tricks of the trade all the time. I think really Patrick Queen, like at, 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 I think they do go over these things at acknowledging with him. But sometimes when the bullets start flying, man, you kind of just like some of that stuff kind of goes out the window. You resort to your natural tendencies. They got to get him to the point to where his natural tendencies are to do what he was cuffed up to do. Yeah. His natural tendency needs to be to play zone defense. There you go. Yep. All right. Let's talk packages. We said we were going into this a little bit and we'll be fairly quick with this. The the Colts ran 63 offensive snaps. I take out the two spikes for that. So among the 63, they played no jumbo packages. So even when they got the defensive pass interference in the end zone on Clark, set them up at the one, the Ravens even then didn't put in, what used to be a very typical package for them with four down linemen, a couple outside linebackers, three safeties, and two inside linebackers. They didn't go with that. They they just went with their regular nickel defense from the one-yard line. Yeah, I think that maybe they were just like assuming that they the Colts were going to try something slick, and they wanted to have that, uh, the guys in coverage to probably make a play on like a play-action pass or something like that. Well, you know, that's that's a fear. But, you know, you, you the reason they put safeties in in that situation is – they're more able to cover that short area to get that taken care of. And you're only dealing with 11 yards of field you need to defend anymore, right? Yeah. It definitely gets more condensed down there. So I was a little surprised by that too. And I was like, you know, like, look, whenever Jonathan Taylor's in the backfield, their odds are they're not going to throw him the ball. So, like, that guy's he's, he's their hammer back there. So I figured they're going to they're gonna run it up the gut, and that's what they did. All right. Move on. Base defense, nine snaps. 
the Ravens used that 3-4 base defense against the Colts, primarily against 12 personnel on early downs. Not every 12 personnel package, because the Colts play a lot of that, but they did it on a lot of first and second downs. Eight of those occurred in the in uh, prior to halftime, so eight of the nine. They only had one in the second half, and that was on that fourth and one play, where they got it stopped. Uh, was was also a base defense against uh, uh, 12 personnel. Uh, I'm sorry, that wasn't even 12 personnel. That was unbalanced jumbo they lined up in. So they had a they had a six lineman in the game. They're unbalanced up front, and then they had a, a a fullback who was an offensive lineman as well. So that was more than 12 personnel. That was that was a, you know a jumbo personnel package they ran in. But they're effective in the in the base. Nine plays, 41 yards, 4.6 yards per play. Yeah, yeah. Um, like the base defense pretty much now is just a formality for Madden at this point. You know, it's, it's something that most teams, especially the Ravens, hardly ever run. Yeah, it's really it's really become for the Ravens almost a response to an extra offensive lineman. But they do play it against twelve sometimes, and this was this was an opportunity. Okay, jumbo nickel, two snaps. Queen got hurt, missed two snaps. On those snaps, rather than put in a second inside linebacker, with it, which I thought was interesting, they put in an extra defensive lineman. So they went with three up front, one inside linebacker, two outside linebackers, that makes six, and then five in the secondary. Now, what's interesting about that is that's telling me that they're not really comfortable with Board playing the mic role per se. So him playing the mic role as one of two linebackers. And if you look at, at who is out there playing, those three guys have split will roles, but no one has really ever been there other than Fort on some plays as the solo linebacker um, otherwise, um, when, uh, sorry, as the Mike linebacker, let's put it that way. Nobody else has really taken that Mike linebacker role when there's been two linebackers out there. Yeah, and I, and I, I totally agree with you. I think that, that the reason that they didn't have put an extra defensive lineman there is because they didn't have Fort. You know, without Fort and without Queen, they're like, well, we're just going to put an extra body up, up front and, and hope, hope this works out because we don't trust either one of those guys in that Mike Modemacher spot. So I think that the absence of Fort was the, the reason for that on that play. All right. Uh, now, the next package is the interesting one because it's one that is really the proxy safety usages in play. I've been calling it rush nickel the last few weeks when the Ravens have been playing it. They ran it 11 times in this game, but it basically has three outside linebackers. And, you know, when the Ravens have three outside linebackers or more in the game, it's some form of extreme pass defense because they've kicked an outside linebacker inside. They're trying to mount a pass rush, and they usually in that situation would go with one defensive lineman and one inside linebacker and a dime defense, six defensive backs to go with that. But in this game, they didn't have that third safety that they would normally play in the dime. So they put board in and what it ends up looking like is one defensive lineman, two inside linebackers, three outside linebackers. And so I got to calling that rush nickel um, in that group. If yes, you look, you just... oh, sorry, go ahead. I was like, yeah, I was the, the package we're talking about is usually Pernell McPhee or Jihad Ward. That's one of the outside linebackers to kick in and rush inside. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. McPhee, frankly, has been doing it since his, his early days as a Raven, not uh, not just in his 2014 year. He really, he became one of the most dominant inside rushers in the entire league in terms of what he could do to drive that pass rush uh, on high leverage downs. But uh, anyways, they still have McPhee and he still plays that role <laughs> or they got McPhee back and he still plays that role. But this, this, this rush nickel, I wanted to talk a, a minute, moment about the usage because if you look at when they have it in, you realize that it's just a, basically a dime substitute. So 
the, the times they used in this game were um, third and five, second and 12, third and nine. And those are all prior to the two final drives of the game. So all those look like normal like, kind of dime situations where you'd want a third safety with three corners and you'd want a better pass defense and present that. But they also, on the Colts' final two drives, they played it on the first two plays and the first six plays, respectively. That also is typical dime time where you're trying to uh, protect a big lead. You, if, if you were playing some sort of tabletop football game, this would be your pass-prevent-long defense, and you'd have it you know, set up in the game, and, and you'd just be using it on every play to keep the opponent from getting you know, large chunks of yardage. And that's what they did. Um, but instead of having that third safety, they've got board in there playing that position. Yeah, I think it really just shows how much faith they have in Chris Board and his coverage abilities to kind of have not just have him in for those plays, but the fact that they haven't brought in a veteran safety who they do feel comfortable within that role, like bringing back a Brandon Carr. It's the fact that they have uh, continued to put Chris Board in that, in, that, um, in that position and use him in that role really speaks volumes to their confidence in him and his ability. It does. And you know what? Brandon Carr is another issue because they, they have to go outside a house. I didn't even know what the rules are to get him quarantined and get him back playing here, how long that would take. But they had Marcus Gilchrist here, and, and they decided, you know, a 10-year veteran safety who had done a lot of this, and maybe he made some mistakes. I, 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 I'm thinking back to the play that Hightower made against the, for the Eagles, and maybe that was a mistake by his that the coaches really came down hard on him for. But the, the dime was very effective when he was in there on the back end or on the front end sometimes, uh, playing a role in that package. And they had an option other than board that would have made a lot of sense, it would have seemed. But they went with board over him, effectively. Yeah, like, like I said, like, that really must speak volumes to their... And I know like, I read a story on Chris Board um, a few years a few years back, maybe it was like around last year, about um, his background. And he, I think he did play a little bit of safety. I think he got recruited to North Dakota State as a safety. So I think he has, still has some of the like, natural coverage skills that they really like you know, coming out of college. And then they wanted to implement some of those more so than... You know, a guy who's not as familiar with the defense like a Marcus Gilchrist is. That 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 really baffled me and still does to this day. But like I said, the more I see Chris Chris Ward in this role, I'm like, okay, well maybe he's like a you know linebacker safety or linebacker hybrid, lean more towards the linebacker side. That's mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, it presents an interesting challenge for the Ravens in terms of how they deal with Chris Ward going forward because he's finishing up year three now with the injuries he suffered in his first couple of years. Uh, actually, I guess he might not have been hurt last year for much of it. He's definitely hurt for a lot of his. Uh, rookie season, only played a couple of games, uh, but barely played any defensive snaps that year. But now at the, at the end of three years, they have to make a decision. He's a restricted free agent next year, and the Ravens' typical posture on such players entering year four would be to either try and get them on a two-year deal for a little bit more than the veteran minimum, which is a possibility with board. I mean, it's a COVID year. I don't think there's going to be a big market for him you know, elsewhere in the NFL. And, and a guy who maybe fits their scheme defensively. And most of the guys the Ravens have had have been Bordesque in terms of they contribute on special teams. LJ Fort, uh, Patrick Ricard, uh, uh, Albert McClellan, Anthony Levine. But they also do something on one side of the ball, offensively or defensively, to make a contribution. And Board could be that next guy who's a good Ravens core special teamer for years to come two years at a time, kind of way Anthony Levine has been, at a salary that's just slightly more than, than what the vet men would be. 
And I think that'll be a perfect spot. And the guy, the Ravens have a real keen eye on getting guys that don't necessarily want to break the bank, but go. They want to stay where they feel valued and where they feel like they're going to be best utilized. And I feel like in Baltimore, a lot of those guys, like you'll see the guys, like you know, leave off to break the bank and don't have success elsewhere. And other guys are taking note of that. Like, hey, I can make money, but I'm not. It's going to be short term money. I'm not going to make as much or be as valued or play as highly, be as utilized elsewhere as I am here. So I think Chris Boyd is a prime candidate for one of those, like I said, those uh, every other year kind of, you know, re-up on, on those uh, short-term contracts. Yeah, I look back to who Anthony Levine is in this town now. I mean, he's, first of all, his, he's very popular just because of his presence on Twitter. But, but it's, it's more than that. I mean, you know, he played all those consecutive games. The streak was just broken recently at 117 or whatever it was. I mean, you know, one of the longer streaks in Ravens history, certainly. And, He's a fairly beloved character in this town. There's, there's, there's real value to that, and there's real value to have a player like that evangelizing the team and its system the way he probably does. To say, hey, come to Baltimore. Coaches are great. Or you know, he could tell Board, you know, look, I've, worked, I've played for other organizations. I played for the Packers, the Eagles, wherever else he was in camp and whatnot for. And, and it wasn't you know, all it was shook out to be. If you stay here and you do your job as it's, you know, you could have my job someday as the personal protector or, you know, that, that special teams captain um, that uh, it could be anyway. It, it's, it's an opportunity for board. Board meets the standards of, that the other players have had for, for many years of contributing on one side of the ball in addition to having a terrific core special teams presence. Yeah, that's just, Speaking back to Anthony Levine, he's really ingratiated himself with the fan base both in Baltimore and abroad. I got a friend of uh, Darren in, in 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 Hawaii who he's in constant contact with, and like I said, just to kind of be that kind of niche both in the locker room and in the community really goes a long way. I even did a story about uh, Anthony Levine about he's kind of like the extra coach on the field. Uh, special teams coordinator Chris Horton said that in his press conference last week, and I um, mean it, it's really true. It, it really is true. He's extending yeah. the coaching staff. They, they used to say about Albert McClellan as well. It's like he, he, he's covered so many kicks. He knows how to do it, but he tells, he tells the next guy next to him how to do it too. But, uh, but that's great. I mean, he's not, he's not the ace. You know, the ace they have is Jordan Richards. They move him all over to try and make tackles, and they, they try and make the other team figure out how to stop him. But, uh, and, and, and maybe to, to a new degree, Devin Duvernay is the new gunner ace that they really have that they, that they love in that role. But – uh, boy, Anthony Levine has been a special player over the years and has really been the glue that's held together that special teams unit. If you think back to this earlier this year, that fake punt against Cleveland, the way he and Fort diagnosed it before the snap even came, I just thought it was wonderful in, uh, in those terms. That was well, back in the opener this year. Yeah, he was actually really active on special teams in this game too. I'm pretty sure like just about all the kickoff tackles he was in on or he made himself. So he was, he was all over the place in special teams. He's real valuable to that special teams unit. All right. Well, speaking of Levine, he did get in the game for four dime snaps uh, as the third safety, and that was the only time they used him. But again, this says more about the Levine and Board relationship than I would otherwise was thought could be true. But they brought Levine in only when they also had Board in the game to play dime. And so effectively, they were going down to a line of scrimmage that only had three pass rushers at the end of each half. And you know, the Levine is, it's almost like Levine is coming in to play a quarter role in that situation rather than coming in to play the dime. By the way, they played it four times, 
And Levine got on the field a little, a little bit again, but the fact that he was on the field then tells me, well, they really actually prefer Board to Levine on the field on third down because otherwise they wouldn't use Levine here if he really wasn't ready to play defense. Yeah, and I, I think what's really what we're, what we're seeing now, Ken, is that uh, the fact that they that Chris Board is just probably much more athletic than Anthony Levine is at this stage in his career. Like, you know, on special teams, you don't really need to be as athletic. If you can be smart and know where to go and know how to, you know, keep wrestling integrity, you're, you're good to go. You don't really have to necessarily be the fastest guy or the most athletic guy. Whereas on defense, you kind of want your best athletes on the field. Yeah, great point. I, I, I agree with that entirely. And that they obviously, you have athletes of – of various size and speed nature on your coverage teams, but that's it's certainly true. You you really want uh, smart players as well uh, to get that game get that uh, done as effectively as possible. All right, well, this is the point in the show where we normally will have some individual player discussion. Lots of guys to discuss individually in this game, even though the the package didn't give as many players as much opportunity to shine. Meaning, I'm sorry, not the packages, the offense the Colts ran. I don't think really gave as many players an opportunity to shine as often as it has in some of these heavy-duty pass rush games. But why don't you pick a player, make a point about him, I'll kind of respond, and then I'll, I'll pick the next one. Um, I guess I'll go with the obvious choice here, Marcus Peters, man. This guy was really the spark in, in really both halves of football. You know, his, 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 his forced fumble that he got on Jonathan Taylor in the first half, you know, that was scooped up and returned by Chuck Clark, you know, really gave the Ravens not just their first points of the game, but it kind of like got them in the game. It tied it up 7-7, and that was a huge swing in the game. And then, he, like I said, we already talked about his interception. And then after the wind were kind of taken out of the seals of the Ravens following the Gus Edwards fumble, he really kind of like revitalized, like, hey, like, look, we're, this is still going to be our half. You know, that, that play right there, and then the confidence of Joe, of John Harbaugh to challenge that play. This really Marcus Peters was the spark, I feel, in both, in both halves for the Ravens. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and what happened is by holding them to only one play there, the Ravens then went through a 32-4 to snap advantage run that I think really wore the defense down. It's not like, it's not like they didn't stop the Ravens twice on three plays on the final two drives of the game in the fourth quarter. When the Ravens really should have gotten a first down, but they ate a lot of clock going 32 to four in terms of plays on them over from the beginning of the second half until what about 11 minutes left in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 additionally about Peters, what I'd say is one thing going on. We, we know he's a gambler with regard to interceptions. We know he gets under, he didn't have to gamble for this interception. He was just in the right place with his natural coverage. He didn't have to undercut a route or anything like that. But where he did gamble was a couple times trying to pry the ball free. And Peters, as second man to the ball, automatically goes for the football and forgets about the tackle. I mean, just you can watch him do that. He's got almost no interest in tackling. He, he wants to tackle the football and see if he can pry that thing loose. And he did in this game where, where a very secure tackle was being made by Harrison at the time. A lot of people thought Harrison got the strip, but uh, Peters is definitely the guy prying the football out from underneath the player as, as he's going down. Um, the other, the other thing is he, I think he had one missed tackle on one of the screen passes where he went right after the football. And as long as he's doing that in tra- traffic, I completely trust Marcus Peters to understand the nature of the gamble he's making. And he only has to succeed occasionally for that to be a great, great choice. And, and in the case of the fumbles, it might be one in 10, it might be one in 20 for him to do it. On a lot of the undercut routes where he might give up a touchdown, it might be more like one in four that he really needs to he needs to make sure he gets an interception and maybe a, a significant return 
on a fairly high percentage of that. But he's proven to be an outstanding gambler, one of the NFL's best in his career so far, and I trust him on both of those scores. Yeah, and it, it's really a beautiful thing with Marcus Peters. The practice really does make perfect. Like I said, if, if you've been watching him since he came to Baltimore, and really all throughout his career, he's not just a ball hawk and when he's back in coverage. Every time he's around the ball, he's going for the ball. And like, that's, like I'm glad that he now is – Leaning more towards secure, like having somebody secure a tackle before he just goes for the ball. But it's it's it's, it's a thing that you know, like not, not all a lot of cornerbacks are willing to do all the time. You see, like Marlon Humphrey do it with such with such proclivity, where you're like, okay, pretty much every play is going for the ball. But the fact that it's kind of rubbing off on Marcus Peters, so like, okay, like you know, look, I, I can get on that on that fruit punch party too. Yeah, so it, it, Marlon has obviously tremendous strength. He's always had baseball bat arms in coverage, but that punch he's developed is definitely a function of really raw strength. Peters doesn't have that. He's not at the same level. He's a prior. So he's, he's, a, he's a crowbar instead of a, instead of a uh, sledgehammer that he's, that he's going to pry that ball loose. Anyway, I love it. I'll pick another player. We'll talk about him. Um, highest snap count yet from Malik Harrison. Uh, I thought he had a really good game in rum defense. That's where the Ravens used him, uh, primarily on first and second down as the will linebacker. And I have his snaps divided by down here. Let me just go to that real quickly. But Harrison played, um, looks like 29 of his 32 snaps he played on first and second down. So he's definitely got a specific role in this in this defense. Yeah, I mean, he, um, he was he – was, like coming out of coming out of college, he was really looked at as like the, the two down linebacker, not not a guy that people really trusted in coverage. He had made a few good plays in coverage early on in his rookie year, but I think in this game he really played he really played a complete game in a place he was on the field. You know, I think he finished second in the, on the team in tackles with with six, and he was just really all over the place and a lot of a lot of times in the right position. He wasn't really out of position too many times when he was on the field. Very quietly, the Ravens have returned to something very similar to what they had in 2018, which is a very viable um, alternation of quality will linebackers. Now, they really had three guys in 2018, which made that unit very special, that had different abilities in, in terms of Peanut doing some positive things, Kenny Young being an aggressive downhill player who could stop the run and rush the passer, and then having Levine come in on third down, who was just a marvelous uh, in, in, intellectually and in terms of his ability to shut down passing lanes and otherwise defend a short zone. They really have got a little bit of that going on now with the combination of Board, Fort when he comes back, and Malik Harrison in terms of each having some very complementary qualities. Yeah, um, I, I think they did a tremendous job. I that that's usually the reserve, the role that's reserved for LJ Fort. But the fact that they were without him this game, and they really kind of kind of used them both a little bit equally. I think I think you said that uh, Harrison kind of edged edged the board out as far as linebacker snaps in this game. But really, I, I love the way they kind of used them and rotated them accordingly. Yeah, thirty. I think it's just thirty-two to thirty-one. So it, it basically equivalent amount of snaps. But if you look at the buy down. Board's playing later downs, and he's playing a lot more pass situations. So Board was only in for six rushing attempts, and he was in for 31, sorry, wrong, I'm wrong on that, 25 passes. So anyway, a different split of, of what they're doing, but you're absolutely right. Your turn. Pick another player. We'll talk about him. Uh, Chuck Clark, man. Chuck Clark, not even just for the, I mean, so, yeah, the the, the force, you know, the, 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 
punk return for a touchdown was great. But the fact that this guy is all, seems to always be in position to make a play or make the play is what you really want to see from your defensive signal caller. Like I said, he's the green dot guy, and you think, you know, a guy who's always getting other people in position to make plays and right position to, you know, be where they're supposed to be. It's nice to see that he's always in, right where he needs to be at the right time. He got two formal recoveries in this game. And the second one, as impressive as the, you know, six, five-yard return was, the second one, it could have, it really could have been a, just a dead play, but the fact that he had the alertness to pick up that ball and yeah it wasn't able to be advanced because you know it was originally ruled incomplete or yeah incomplete pass but the fact that he had the wherewithal to pick up that ball that just goes to show you that the kind of intelligence that they rave about in the castle all the time about this guy right they i i, I was very impressed by that too and i you know in going to camp in past years one of the things they did is they had this scoreboard that they would keep of the score between the offense and defense for that practice and the rules were just, they were very difficult to understand. And I never saw them published anywhere or put down. Harbaugh tried to explain them, and he couldn't really, other than I think you get more points on third down. And, you know, there's points for this and there's points for that. But one of the big ones was anytime the ball's on the ground, you automatically pick it up. And the player who recovers it, their side gets a point, whatever. So there was always points exchanged from that and, and the desire to go after the ball. And you saw both... Queen and Clark raced after that ball. Clark picked it up after the whistle. Still a clear recovery, but you know the whistle had already been blown that the pass was quote-unquote incomplete before the challenge anyway, that that was the ruling on the field. But smart move by him to obviously to pick it up then. And, I, and, and that game that they used to play at camp really uh, came back to mind then. The other one, I don't know if you remember this, Josh. Were you a Ravens fan uh, back in 2010 when they lost the game at the Steelers in the playoffs when they were up 21-7? Yes, I, I I remember that vividly. Okay, so during that game, the Ravens went up fourteen seven on Corey Redding's picking up what the Steelers assumed were was a dead football that was knocked free from Roethlisberger in the pocket. They were in fact huddling up for the next play as Redding picked it up, ran into the end zone. I'm thinking, yeah, that's the game again showing up <laughs> that they uh, they know how to pick the ball up late. But I agree with you. Uh, great game by Clark. Uh, he's he's just been such a great around the around the ball player. He's been the glue for that defense in terms of making sure everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and he's really been the solidifier dating back to last season. Like people wanted to praise Marcus Peters for being the guy that kind of solidified secondary. No, it was really the ascension of Chuck Clark into that role, pulling in for Tony Jefferson. They really kind of got that secondary, like you know clicking on all cylinders and having guys in position that they were allowing less big plays. And, and just going back to that, you know, the alert play, it's really a reflection of the coaching staff, the coaching mm-hmm. staff and, and how they ingrain that in their players, in the players' brains. Like whenever you see the ball, whenever you see the ball on the ground, pick it up. Even if the whistle has been blown, pick it up. You know, if you want to run it the other direction, cool, but at least, at least put a hand on the ball. So I think that's, um, that's a kudos to the Ravens. And kudos to Clark. Well coached team. That's for sure. All right, I want to talk about Yannick Ngakwe. Um, actually, you know what? You can bring up Ngakwe if you want, or I'll bring him up next. But I want to talk about Derek Wolf first. Derek Wolf had more pass snaps than all of the other defensive linemen in this game put together. Think about that in terms of how difficult that must be for one player to do. But the fact is he's in a lot of formations where the Ravens are packages where the Ravens just use one defensive lineman. And in fact, he was the only defensive lineman on the field at all for the last two drives of the game. Otherwise, the Ravens had their front all made up of outside linebackers. So I thought Wolf did a good job on a day where um, pressures were hard to come by. He had three as I scored it. 
looked good in that regard. Uh, didn't really have an opportunity to do his bread and butter underneath stunt play, but he did uh, you know, a number of good things in terms of creating some pressure, making Rivers feel a little uncomfortable, move around. And the, here's, the, here's the, the capper on his day, was the Ravens only allowed 3.7 yards per rush when he was in the game. When he was not in the game, they allowed 8 yards per rush. Yeah, I really think he put it upon himself to kind of step up once Clay's Campbell went down. Like, okay, look, that's, you know, our, our, our starting five technique is down. You know, three technique is going to have to step up and do his thing. And that's exactly what he did. Like, I said, both against the run. The thing that's so great about Campbell is he's just as elite defending the run as he is rushing the passer. And the mm-hmm. fact that Derek Wolf realized, like, hey, I'm going to need to kind of fill, help fill that void. And he did that exceptionally well in my eyes. Like he said, he got a bunch of pressures. He was a real good pocket collapser up the middle and really, like I said, getting, getting a little kind of off kilter at times. And then he, like I said, he was outstanding against the run as well. Yep. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Uh, got another player you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, um, I'll let you have Ngakwe because I really want to talk about this kid. Justin met man, like that, that rookie had, a, like I said, he didn't have like a splashy game in terms of, you know, getting, a, getting his first career sack or anything like that. But um, he was really, he's, he's really stuck in the game as well when Campbell went out. He kind of put that upon himself too. He was like, look, it's my rookie. I'm a rookie. Cut. It's my time to shine. And he, and he, and he signed. Like I said, he didn't shine brightly. But the one play for real, that really sticks out to me was that tackle he made. I think it was yes. Johnson Taylor when he's catching a screenplay. And if he doesn't make that tackle, if he doesn't grab him by his leg or ankle, whatever it was, that play is going, I want to say it's going the house, but it's picking up a good chunk of, a good, good chunk of 15 yards. yards. Yeah. yeah, at least, at least. In fact, he was able to make that play and eventually force a, that went on the drive that eventually ended in a punt for the Colts was huge. And just to kind of see that hustle and that and that grip from that rookie really all game long, I think he finished with five tackles, most among all defensive linemen, if I'm not mistaken, in this game was really outstanding. I, I, I love this play too. Um, I, did, I actually did not know he had as many as five tackles. That is enough that, absolutely, five tackles. How the hell did I miss that? All right, didn't show up in our notes all that much. A lot of the shorter run plays, if it's three or four yards, I allow that to kind of stand for itself in terms of whether or not it's a defensive win. But I need to look more closely at that because it was a screen pass that he tracked tracked the player, uh, tracked Taylor down on. What I thought was impressive about the Ravens' interior defensive line in terms of the statement it made is despite the quality that the Colts have on the inside, and they have good pass blockers, they also have some pretty good run blocking size there as well. Despite that, they did not run any of their offense through the center of that defensive line. They ran all of their plays to the outside, run and pass. And I'm trying to even think, you can probably count on one hand the number of times they actually ran a play between the tackles in this game. Yeah, and like I said, I think they tried to do that with nine minds once. But I know Jonathan Taylor, he was kind of in a doghouse after he fumbled, and like, which I was like, okay, great. Oh, like that, uh, but the really like like you said, the depth of this defensive tackle group. Like so Justin Ellis had a really good game. He didn't put up a whole bunch of stats. He had a pass deflection and one tackle. But his presence, uh, Brandon Williams doing his Brandon Williams thing, anchoring in the middle of that defense, and then Justin uh, Matabike and Derek Wolf like that. They really, I mean, once Campbell went out, you were kind of, I was I was kind of sweating a little bit. Like, oh my gosh, run defense is going to be suspect, and pass the pass rush pass rush is going to be suspect. But they really held their own and really uh, performed above expectation yep i uh are we ready to move on to Ngakwe then yeah go ahead all right i'll i'll, I'll toss a couple things out there about him I, I really like the way the ravens are using him situationally um 
Harbaugh made some very coach speaky comments today about how much he's adding to the run defense. Let's get the bad out of the way first. On the very first play of the game, he's the only player who can defend that pitch to Taylor, I think. But it was a it was a pitch left where basically there's only a receiver in a corner on that side plus Ngakwe. Both of the inside linebackers got caught up in the wash and Ngakwe was late getting to the outside and the play went for I don't know 11 or 12 yards to to start the start the game. That was one of the only real problems he had in this game. It was uh, other than that, you know, when he was in on the on the and pass defense, I thought he did a good job of getting what pressure was available in a limited amount of time. And he's played now two quarterbacks who get rid of the ball very quickly. He hasn't had a sack. He did have one close call where he wasn't able to take down Roethlisberger. But they're going to come. The sacks are going to come. And more importantly, the opportunities he creates for other players are going to become more apparent as time moves on. Matthew Judon is about to have an enormous second half to the season. And a lot of it's going to be on the space Ngakwe creates on whatever side he's rushing from and the reliable B-gap that that'll create from, from Ngakwe fanning out a tackle and forcing him to, to go where he likes to go, the back pylon of the pocket. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, basically talking about that first play, I was like, why is Pernell McPhee not out there? Like He's like <laughs> the best Ed setter, him and Jalen. I wouldn't even have it with Jalen Ferguson on that on initial play just because I think like Ngakwe at this point in his Ravens career is best utilized as a situation pass rusher and I think like I said after that he had a, he had you know, he had a really good game but um I really agree with you in the sense that it's going to open up a lot more opportunities even like like the fact that they have Yannick and Clayus Campbell on this team are it's going it should be huge for uh, Tyus Bowser and Matthew Judon in the second half of the season and for the Ravens fans who are kind of like you know disappointed that, that Yannick Gakwe hasn't gotten a sack yet Believe me, they're going to come. Like I said, we face two quarterbacks in back-to-back weeks who like to get the ball out basically 2.5. So if we're going to face more quarterbacks, like to hold on to the ball a little bit more where the pass rush can get to, get, get, you know, get going, and the sacks will come for everybody, not just Yannick. Yeah, I mean, I would start with this this weekend. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the Patriots will do a lot of things to try and game plan, to try and get the ball out of Cam Newton's hand. But Cam Newton is really a creator, and he's going to give up some sacks. He's got, he's an extender and a creator, and they're they're going to be able to get to him for some sacks. If it's not Cam Newton, if it ends up being Stidham, because you know they've had enough of Cam Newton at this point with two touchdowns and seven interceptions entering the game tonight, then you know that certainly will present yet another opportunity to to go after the quarterback. But it should be a fun night in in New England this next week, and I think we'll we'll get to see the the hunters uh, out there looking for blood. Okay, so let's see. I brought up Ngakwe. Your turn. Who would you like to talk about next? If uh, uh, Terrell, Terrell Bonds. Terrell Bonds. I'm not going to lie. I was really concerned about how he would be able to perform and the, the, the Rivers are going to target him ex, you know, extensively in this game. I mean, like I said, he did test him a little early and often in the first half, but he really responded in the second half. And along with the entire defense, but really Terrell Bonds, I was really proud of the way that he played in that game and that almost interception he could have had. If he would have, if he would have corralled, I tweeted this out. If he would have corralled that ball, by the time he would have gained control, he wouldn't have been touched and could have picked. You know, went the other way with for for a pick six. And I, I think the fact that he was in position and attacking that ball goes. You know that that that's what you that's that's what the coaches are seeing from him. You know, coming into this game, Ravens fans, oh, we need Brandon Carr. Oh, we need this person. We need that person. But the fact that Terrell Bonds was there in the position to make that play that shows you exactly why the coaches are so confident in his ability to perform going forward it's definitely a positive that he was in position 
to make the play and got his hands on the football. I think some of that came as a result of being soft on that coverage, which gave him a chance to play a mishandled ball. I think it was actually thrown behind the receiver was what created that opportunity. Behind, right? Not in front. Was behind. Yeah, yeah, I think it was a little bit behind, but I, I was just glad to see that, you know, he wasn't just getting balls completed on him left and right like he kind of was against Pittsburgh last week. Ben Roethlisberger really kind of went after him at times in that game. Uh, and, and the other component of Bonds versus, say, a Brandon Carr is the value you have in the future of those guys. I mean, Brandon Carr, if you bring him in, you, you hopefully can get him at the vet minimum, and you get him for this year, and that's it. And then you got to re-sign him again. With Terrell Bonds, if he suddenly develops into a good player, he's only in the first of four years you have of team control. That's the guy you want. That's what they're trying to do at right guard. That's why they didn't give the job to Fluker at any point. Uh, It wasn't necessarily because they didn't think D.J. Fluker was going to be as good a guard as any of the three other options they have. It's because they really like having a young player at that position if they can try and find one. You need to stagger kind of where you are in terms of your normal curve of contract maturation or first contract maturation along your offensive line in particular. Yeah, definitely with Brandon Carr, he's what you get. You know what you have in him, but with Terrell Bonds, I feel like the Ravens, like they really, ever since Tavon Young started really getting injury prone, you can't, they've been searching for that second, the second slot corner they can have in the event that Tavon Young does go down, which he has shown propensity for doing. So I think if Terrell Bonds can, you know, can, can develop into that guy that you can rely on when Tavon does eventually go down. Hopefully doesn't, hopefully this is the last time, you know, for him, but you know, who knows, you know, the history is the best indicator of future success. And right now Tavon Young just hasn't been able to stay on the field. If the robots can develop into that reliable slot corner, like his backup slot corner and then come in when, you know, Tavon is out, you know, hopefully he's not out going for like I said, but that'd be great. Yeah. It has a lot of value. And if, and if you can do that and play some good special teams, you really got a player that can help you. You know, if he provides legitimate, you know, fifth corner depth, let's say, and you're really talking about second slot corner. So he does a little bit more for that, more than that for you, because he'll allow if he stays on the field at slot corner, for instance, and they had an injury on the outside. Well, all of a sudden they've got Marlon Humphrey back on the outside. And maybe let's say Jimmy Smith got hurt. Uh, You'd still have additional, you'd be get you'd be getting an additional dividend of value on Bonds being able to play effectively at slot corner because you'd be getting uh, Humphrey on the outside again. Yeah, and that's where Marlon Humphrey does his best work is on the outside. Like it's great that he has that nickel nickelback versatility, but where, where he's at his best and can be utilized most effectively is on the outside. So um, I think if Terrell Bonds can develop to a player for the Ravens, it only benefits their defense that much more going forward. All right. One more guy I want to talk about before we move on and before we you know uh, talk about our MVPs is Jimmy Smith. I thought he had just a terrific game. Uh, he did not get targeted often. Obviously, that's part of the statement. It's part of the statement with Marcus Peters as well in terms of, uh, you know, they pr- much preferred to go after Bonds in this game. They didn't even throw that much down the field. But, but when they did throw down the field, they really wanted to go after Bonds or go after a linebacker. Uh, Smith gave up a, a softball in coverage for... I don't even remember the number of yards. I think it might be 10 yards, six plus four kind of thing where there was a not insignificant amount of yak on the play. The very next play, he was step for step right down the post route uh, with Marcus Johnson, I think it was, on that play. And uh, he and Elliott made it a little bit too difficult for Rivers to throw that ball in a sweet spot. you got to think about the quarterback's eyes are really thinking, 
how can I drop that ball in where only my guy can get it? And the, the defensive backs need to kind of toss their coverage shade over as much of a, of a you know, circle or a, or a radius as they can to, to show, the, show that cornerback that, hey, they've got a lot of this. If you throw close, you might, you might get a pick, and you don't want that on your record. Yeah, yeah, most well, certainly not. Um, I definitely agree. All right, well, let's talk some MVPs here. And uh, I like to go just three, two, one. And it, would you like to play along, or do you want to just talk about mine, or how would you like to do this? Oh, yeah, we can, we can, we can play along. Go with your number three guy then to, to start. Uh, my number three guy will probably um uh, I think the same guy you have on your list is uh, Matthew Judon, and just because like the the amount of hustle he showed in this game was just you know just just really a reflection of like a guy who kind of like wanted to I want to say get back in the good races but kind of make up for like, hey look I wasn't there for you guys second half last uh, uh last week against Pittsburgh because I got you know got got tossed out but it just really a reflection on the really the whole tenacity of that of that defense and just kind of just like flying to the football he finished the game with a, a team high seven tackles and he got a pass deflection so it was a guy who was really active all over the field. Yeah, he did a lot of positive things in in coverage in particular. I love the the coverage of the tight end on the route that was an out route to the to the left sideline. And so he was able to basically throw enough shade over that. And he's also a t- tall guy that Rivers had to throw the ball away. Come the fourth and one play, Judon wasn't fooled by anything. He was going right after Rivers and going for blood. And that, of course, uh, forced the inaccurate throw and, and got them off the field on their on what was really their last um, big hope. A lot, of, a lot of the Chargers fans are upset they didn't kick a field goal in that position, but uh, it probably was a good decision to go for it. If you're if you're talking analytics, it's just a matter of uh, they didn't get it done, and and Judon was too good about sniffing out that play in advance. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't pull the Cincinnati Bengals and kick the field goal to save face. <laughs> would have moved him down eight, and then we still had a game to sweat for a little bit longer. That's for sure. Okay, you're, um, I'll, I'll go ahead with your number two guy since you did in fact take my number three guy. Um. Number two, uh, I don't want to take your number two guy because like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really how I have them ranked in my in my estimation. That's okay. Too. Just just go ahead then. Just just go. Uh, ahead. We'll, you... I got, yeah, we'll go with the same same two guys. Uh, Chuck Clark, yeah, like he was he was really really um like said in the right place at the right time at all times, and just just like the, the heads upness of the pick up that second force fumble, and then he took the first one back for his first career touchdown, and the Ravens' third defensive touchdown of the season, all three of which have come from uh, fumble recoveries returned for touchdowns. So mm-hmm. I was it was great to see him. Like, I just love to see his maturation. He's really going from like you know a solid starter to really one of the key, you know, one, one of the big time difference makers in this league. Yeah, it's he's, you know, the, the Ravens have spent nothing on their safety group right now. You know, Levine is a UDFA, Chuck Clark is a six, Elliott is a six, Geno Stone, if he ever got into a game, is a seven, and it's probably the one of the best, if not the best, group of safeties in the entire NFL right now. It's just they are an outstanding pair. Uh, Elliot, we didn't really talk about in this game, but uh, you know he's he's done a lot of positive things, and uh, and I'm just absolutely loving who Chuck Clark is. That green dot, that's never leaving Chuck Clark. They may they may talk about how it'd be better to have Queen have it, but uh, so much flexibility is granted by the fact that Chuck Clark has the dot and what that allows him to do in terms of free substitution at linebacker. And I think the fact that they don't run as much base defense hardly ever makes it makes more sense for Chuck Clark to have the green dot. You know, when you're when when you're running a, a, a defensive scheme that has mostly defensive backs on the field, you're gonna need the guys gonna be able to communicate to defensive backs better. You don't want your 
inside linebacker turning around and yelling at this guy, yelling at that guy. You want a guy who's already back there free range and kind of like getting in a position to make plays and get other people in position to make plays as well. Yeah, it's, I think that's a, that's a very good point there. Um, number one guy, I assume we have the same guy. Of course, it's Marcus Peters. We talked about him a little bit earlier in this game. Is there anything you would add to what he did in this game, or do you think we covered it enough? Um, I'll, I'll say one more thing. The, the emotional edge that he brought to this to this game um, from both when he was on the field and then when he was on the sidelines too, like when Lamar got hit mm-hmm. by, by uh, Bree Willis from um, – from, from the from the coach, the fact that he almost I'm glad he didn't get thrown out of the game for doing that because when you come off the sideline, that's like that's a I'm not sure if that's a tossable or ejectable offense, but it's it's definitely up there where he could have cost the Ravens field position or or first down if, if if that. But the fact that you know he was willing to come onto the field, run into the field, stick it for his quarterback, that kind of rubbed off on, on on the other players, you know, both offense and defense. You know, like you know even even the guys on defense were willing to ride with ride with Lamar and stick up for him. I know Patrick McCarry was um was was involved in that little dust up too. But the fact that Marcus Peters kind of brings that edge, man, he brings like that that Ravens esque edge, you know, like that that you see from like you know the Ravens defenders of of old. Yeah, definitely a, a a very emotional character on the sidelines. I generally like that. I thought you know uh, who was who was the linebacker Kiko Alonso when he hit Flacco and the way Jensen uh, cratered him after oh, that yeah, play yeah. and and J- that guy into the dirt. <laughs> Jensen got no foul uh, called against him. He might have gotten fined. I don't really recall whether he was or not, but uh, but he, did, he didn't get any foul, and uh, he certainly was very appreciated by Flacco thereafter. Yeah, yeah, that's like you just want those. You want your guys on both sides of the ball to have that, have that, that, that gritty edge. Because you're gonna need that in games, and you know, to overcome adversity like they did in this game. You're gonna need guys who are gonna be able to fire up guys on both sides of the ball. You know, like I said, with Campbell out, you know, you, you can only lead by. He can only you can only do so much leading from the sideline, but the fact that Marcus Peters was able to lead on the field and on the sideline is, you know, like I said it really helped the Ravens in this game. All right, let's let's go back to the mailbag here, Josh. You got anything for us? All right, yeah, the mailbag is your chance to steer the show using the hashtag Film Study Mailbag. We've got a little bit here, and the mailbag today is brought to you by the Situation Room. Gabe and Jordan have a brand new episode up now. Looking back at Sunday's game, so go and subscribe and check out the Situation Room. It's over at filmstudybaltimore.com. All right, first one up is, Ken, can you explain the lack of utilization of Levine this week? Uh, in a sense, yes. In, a, in another sense, no. But we talked about it a little bit earlier in the show. I think they're at a point where they prefer to have Board as that sub-package will linebacker uh, you know, a role that for most of Ravens history has been has been filled by a third safety. Uh, they prefer to have him than than the other safety opportunity uh, alternatives they now have on the team. I think if they were if it were earlier in the year, obviously they had Marcus Gilchrist, they had other players they trusted more. But Levine, through a combination of injuries and a- introducing the Lowe's List for innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Age, for whatever reason, they just don't completely trust in that dimeback role, which he excelled at just two years ago. 
Oh uh, yeah, I definitely agree with you, Ken. Like that, we we did cover that extensively in this in this pod. It's just like I said, it's nothing against Levine personally, or or like like I said, or, or poo pooing on his de- uh, ability to affect the game defensively. It's just he's more valuable on teams, and they have guys that they like better who are more athletic on defense. All right. Uh, leading into this game, the storyline was COVID and how it was te- how it was screwing with the Ravens defense. How much did you think that ended up affecting the gameplay by them only being able to go over game plan by Zoom for the week and then not having Marlon Humphrey? Did any did any of that really affect the game? Why don't you oh, go first on this one? Well, I'm I'm glad that it didn't. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Coming into this game, I was like, this is one of the ways this game could go. They could respond the way the Titans responded, or they could respond the way the Patriots responded. And this Patriots season kind of spiraled out of control after COVID hit them, whereas the Titans, they kind of like rallied around that adversity, and it helped propel them to a big win over Buffalo. So I was glad that it didn't impact them in this game, and the fact that they were still able to keep in contact with those guys. And, you know, it was like it's, it's almost to the point in the season where, like, even if a guy does make a few days of practice, you know, he's, he's been around the building and build, been around the team enough to where a few days of practice won't be as devastating as to where the Patriots were. Like, they were just starting to get, you know, get in the groove early on in the season, and that kind of derailed their whole um, their whole momentum. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm agree. I'm, I'm very happy that it didn't end up costing them this game. Uh, the loss of Fort was not related to COVID, uh, but he hadn't practiced. And I thought, if there's a player who can get by without practicing, it's probably Fort. And, of course... Then the will linebacker role had to go to two guys who I'm not sure can get by without practicing in terms of Board and Harrison. But I thought they filled in ably. Neither one had a performance that was completely without warts. We didn't really discuss the warts too much, particularly in Board's performance. But, uh, you know, they, they both played ably enough to get the job done, and they both did some specialized things well um, that each of them is intended to do. Did you see any, like, did they simplify the game plan or anything as far as you could tell? There are a whole bunch of things simplified about the pass rush. So we've talked a bit about that. They used a, a, a little more limited set of packages. So we've talked about that. But in some ways, that made the, the, the packages more complex for a player like Board, who has more responsibility to do a role that he, he doesn't do all the time. Right. Yeah, I definitely think they mixed up the coverage more than they did the pass rush just because they figured they weren't going to get to Rivers fast enough to for it to be effective. All right, and final question is Spencer got in asking how upset I am watching Monday Night Football tonight. And, Ken, you're not watching it, so I'll just mention that um, for some reason people love to point out to me when Perriman has a good game. <laughs> and Joe Flacco is now 20th on the all-time passing yards list as he passed Joe Montana today. Good for so Joe. I, I still enjoy seeing Joe do well and uh, have great games like he did today. Yeah, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm glad to see that too. Um, I, I jokingly tweeted out, if only uh, Joe Flacco and Bashad Perriman could have done more of that in Baltimore. Um, but, you know, it, 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 I wouldn't say it worked out for everybody, but, you know, it's good to see those guys have success elsewhere. No, uh, no harm done for that success right, being Josh. in New York for the New York Jets. Yep. All right, Josh, uh, you write over on Maryland Sports Blog. How often do you write over there? And then, what's your Twitter handle so people can follow you as well? Oh, my Twitter handle is uh, Josh Reed nine zero seven. Paying homage to my the fact that I'm from and from and live in Anchorage, Alaska. And um, I write. I pretty much turn out stuff every day for them. Um, I cover a lot of stuff pertaining to the team. 
news, but I also do a lot of analytical pieces. Um, I got a, uh, I do a series of articles each week breaking down different like my top takeaways from each game. And this week I will do defensive standouts, which we covered extensively in this pod. But I'm also going to break down the second half adjustments on both offense and defense from this game, and then um, how the how the backup stepped up uh, big time in this game. So um, be on the lookout for those at MarylandSportsBlog.com and come check us out. Love talking football with you, Josh, and you're always welcome here. We'll try and work in whatever we can here on the regular show. But even more than that, I look forward to doing more of our short work together this offseason and, and no doubt coming up with a lot of individual topics of interest to, to rifle through because those discussions are always great. Yeah, I really enjoy them too. All right, and Ken, over on FilmStudyBaltimore.com, I already mentioned the new Situation Room that's up there. You've got the defensive article out as well. Yeah, defensive article's out. A lot of the stuff we covered today, and it's some additional stuff too in terms of uh, individual plays you might have missed, and uh, a lot of the package information there is in a more digestible, tabular form there that you can get You can get it. It's a little more accessible. So uh, hopefully you'll, you'll enjoy that. Offensive line article comes later in the week. And we, of course, have three pods yet to come this week. The offense we'll do tomorrow night. It'll be out on Wednesday. Uh, from your guys' point of view, the uh, Know Your Foe episode, we have a great guest this week, Mark Schofield, to cover the Patriots. That's that's one you will not want to miss. He's a really a national expert uh, on quarterback play, but he'll, he'll do a great job with the Patriots as well, which is his team. And then on uh, Thursday, we, we have the uh, By the Numbers available. It'll be on, available on Friday, actually, that we do with uh, uh, Dan Reese, and he always does a great job with that as well. All right, yep, full schedule coming up. So, all right, guys, well, we will talk Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you, so you can always depend on us. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.